0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in Second Samuel chapter 24 tonight, which is amazing. As you've noticed, it's the final chapter of 2 Samuel, uh, though not exactly the end of David's story and testimony in Scripture, just kind of the end of uh, the part that we call Samuel that's ascribed uh, to him, though he couldn't have wrote this part because he's been dead for about 50 years at this time. But chapter 24 is a very strange epilogue, a very strange way to close the chapter. It's not exactly in chronology with the events that we've been tracking with. What happens in 24 probably happened sometime earlier in David's ministry, but it's placed in the scripture right here. And what you're going to discover as we go through it is that it's a very challenging and very puzzling and also very revealing and in some ways very comforting uh, segment of scripture. It's very simple. It contains an action, something that's done, a reaction or consequence based on the action, and then finally an outcome, and that outcome is the reason why its place where it is in Samuel, God uh, wanting us to see. And so let's read the chapter together. Chapter 24, I'm going to read all 25 verses of it right here, and then we'll get into uh, the, the, the content of the message. So uh, it says in verse 1, it says, And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah, or take a census. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, north to south, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Orior on the right side of the city that lies in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Dan Jaon about to Zidon. And came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, David's pastor, one of David's advisors, spiritually, saying, go and say unto David, thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things, choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Pick your poison. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or will you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or that there be three days pestilence in the land? Now advise, you choose, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. You can have a seven-year depression, you can have a three-month invasion, or you can have a three-day pandemic. In verse 14, it says that David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. I mean a straitjacket. I don't know what to choose. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of men. He says, let God choose. I just pray it's not the second one. I don't want to deal with an invasion. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning, even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan, even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Araunah, the Jebusite. And David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, go up, Rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. Here, take it for free. All these things did Aruna, as a king, give unto the king. And Aruna said to the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king, David, said to Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it from you at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stayed from Israel. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you continue to speak through that which has already been spoken. And we lay our hearts open and bare before you tonight, God, that you might communicate to us from heaven to earth in a way that this passage might speak to us in our present time and moment. So teach us, Lord, of your truth and lead us in our path through your word. We thank you for doing so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so the chapter opens up and God declares that he has a problem with Israel. It says that the anger of the Lord was stirred up against Israel. And thus he moves David in his emotion, in his action, to number or to call for his senses. It says that in the text. It says that he moved David to say Go number Israel. And so the command comes from David down to Joab that there's a census to be taken. David says, I want to know the number of the citizens of both Israel in the north and Judah to the south. David wants to know for some reason the size and the scope of his reach. He wants to know the number of subjects that he has. Now, there's a problem with this. The first problem with this is that they're not his subjects. They're not his people. They're God's people. And David has the privilege of serving them as their king. When man talks to David, he's called the king. But when God talks of David, he calls him his servant, Because these people are not David's people. These are God's people. And so for David to want to know the number of God's people is to be crossing a boundary. It's kind of like David saying, hey, I want to see how much money is in God's bank account. You wouldn't do that to your boss and you certainly wouldn't do it to God. Another problem with what David wants to do right now is that the number of people in Israel is absolutely irrelevant. It makes absolutely no difference for any reason for David to want to know this number or this information. It doesn't signify anything concerning the strength of David's army militarily. Because God said that when I'm with you, two of you will chase a thousand. And so God says, the number of people that are in your army or in your military don't make a difference because you could have all the soldiers in the world and you could still lose, or you could just have one or two and you could still win because I'm the one that fights your battles. Also, it doesn't matter uh, to this thing because the strength, the size, the resources that are at David's disposal are all given to him and promised him from God. And so the number of people has nothing to do with it. Why does David want to know the number of Israel? Well, you can reason through the text or from the text that this is nothing more than just to feed his own ego. To know the number or the strength or whatever it is that David's trying to find out is is just a means for himself to compare with maybe other kingdoms Or in some way to know how strong he is. It really is a deceptive metric to want to know the number of the people. Okay. Now, it doesn't tell you anything. It causes anxiety and it can change the compass of your direction when you start thinking in these terms. When you as an individual begin focusing on, and I'll say it as a Christian, is you as a Christian begin focusing on what's my net worth? How much am I, at, if I, if I were to calculate all of my assets, how much am I actually worth? And you calculate it out. Well, I've got this much equity in my house. I've got this much in my retirement account, this much in savings. I'm like, this much a year, this much in this, this whole thing. And, and you come out and come down to that number and you're like, wow. Okay, now you got that number. So what? Okay, because God says that he's the one that provides for you, right? He's the one that says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, and these whole things. He says, let those things take care of themselves. It doesn't help you to know what that number is. What's in my retirement account? How many people are in my church? Or, you know, whatever it might be that you're trying. All of a sudden, what's going to happen is that you're going to get anxious. Because now you're just comparing yourself with everyone else. Well, now that I know that number, well, where does that rank among X age Americans in 2021 for where I should be if I want to retire? And notice you go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm below it. And you start going like, oh my. Or you say, I'm above it. But now all of a sudden, it's like, I got to keep it. And now all of a sudden, my aim and my goal is somehow affected by that number, whatever it is. And and that number now, whatever it is, begins to govern the way that you make decisions. Everything needs to be up and to the right. And if I'm doing good, everything is up and to the right. But if I'm doing bad, then things are going, or if things are going south, then I must be doing bad. Listen, you've gotten your eyes off things because things go up and down. God says, I don't want you worried about this. But for David, he wants to know even Joab who is not a godly person as we have seen, looks at David and says, what? Why do you want to know that number? Like what? That's just a waste of time. It doesn't make any sense that you want to do it. However, David's word prevails. They start making the count. They start on the outskirts. They work towards the center, and David gets the results. Now, as soon as David gets the results, he hears the number. There's 1.3 million men. In the army, and then whatever the other numbers were of the people uh, around it, that's probably what David was interested in. We're not told. Okay, but as soon as David hears that number, conviction from the Holy Spirit comes in because he knows that he did something that wasn't right. He has the conviction that he has offended God in this. Isn't it interesting how sin affects? You know, you do something, you kind of know you're not supposed to do it, but you think, well, it's no big deal, I can get away with it, and then you do it. And as soon as you indulge, whatever pleasure that sin promised brings with it a guilt and a shame that exceeds the pleasure and makes it unenjoyable. It's amazing, but it happens every single time. It's just the way of God. Now, if you have a tender heart towards God and you sin against God, then the conviction that comes creates such an unsettling in the heart that you just want to be free of the shame and the guilt of what you did. You no longer care about what you would get for sinning. You just want to be free of the guilt and the shame. That's what happens to David. He realizes he did something wrong. He immediately says, God, I've sinned. I've done foolishly. This was a a, a stupid exercise, a waste of resources. I'm sorry that I did this. So the pain of the shame greatly outweighed the pleasure that he experienced in finding out the information that he wanted. But not only that, now he has to deal with the discipline that comes because God says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse six, that as a father chastens his son or corrects or trains his son, so the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so God is going to bring discipline to David now as is his way. And so he says to David, choose your punishment. And again, he says, you can have seven years of depression, three months of invasion, or you can have three days of pandemic. And David says, please, God, you choose just anything but an invasion of our enemies. And so we're told God chose a pestilence. And from morning until the time appointed, 70,000 people died. Well, the outcome of the event is that God gets to the point where the angel that's causing this destruction is over Jerusalem, the name where God says that he, or the place where God says he'll put his name there. And God tells the angel to hold back. He says, stay, stop for a minute. And he lets David see, because we're told there in verse 17, that David saw the angel. So God opens his eyes and lets David see the connection between what's going on between heaven and earth. And then David repents with the same voice that was moved to speak and to say, number Israel. David says, I have sinned. I am guilty of this. These people are innocent. God put the punishment upon me, not upon them. And then the prophet Gad comes to David. He says, listen, here's what you do. Go by the threshing floor of of the Jebusite and offer there unto God an offering, a peace offering, and a burnt offering, and the plague will be stayed. And of course, David does it. He has this interaction with Aruna. He numbers to him the price. He pays it. He offers. The plague is stayed, and it's the end of the story and the end of the book. It's an amazing passage of scripture. But there's three things in it that I want to pull out for you and place before us here tonight that you can write down and think through and apply to yourself and to the situation that we're in in the world today. There's three things. Number one is a problem. Number two is a plan. And number three is a path. So let's start with the problem. Israel and Judah, the people of God that we're talking about here in the text, they were the covenant chosen people of God. They were chosen by God to represent him to belong to him and to be blessed by him. God said to Abraham, who was the father of it all, he said, in blessing, I will bless you. In multiplying, I will multiply you. As the nation developed and unfolded, God gave countless promises to his people through the prophets and through Moses. And God placed his blessing upon his people. But now in this moment, God sees something in them that's hindering what he wants to do in them and what he wants to do for them. And God is offended and God is frustrated because there's something there. That's why it says that the anger of the Lord was stirred up against Israel. At the same time, you have David. David was God's chosen king. He was chosen by God to be his servant to be God's friend, and to be blessed by God. And we've seen as we follow David that God has kept that promise and he has blessed David. But God sees something in David that's hindering what he wants to do for David and through David, that's offending God's person and his ways, and that's frustrating God. And it's revealed as you kind of look at the context of what's going on, what it was that God was upset about. The problem that God has is that there was pride. Israel and David had become lifted up in pride, pride is an attitude or a condition of thinking that you're better than someone else, bigger than someone else, beyond everybody else, above everyone else, more valuable than everyone else, more privileged or more favored than everybody else. And God saw an attitude of pride in the nation and in the king. Now, here's, here's kind of the, the, the confusing part of it all. It, it's that it was kind of true. I mean, if you really think about Israel in the context of the other nations, they were better. I mean, really think about it. They had a better military, a better economy. They had better culture, better values and ethics. They had better living conditions, a better environment, a better government, better laws, a better quality of life. They had better health, better land, a better location. They were literally advantaged in every single way. And so you can think about it and you can look at it and say, well, of course they thought they were better. They were. I mean, everybody was the envy of the Jews, okay? But wait, let's ask the question, why were they better? They were better because God made a promise to Abraham and to these people, and then he performed that promise, and he blessed them. He told them before it happened over and over again, when you read the early chapters of Deuteronomy, he says, listen, I want you guys to understand every day of your lives that you don't deserve any of this. I'm not doing this for you because you're better. I'm not doing it because you're stronger. I'm not doing it because you're more in number. I love you because I love you. I made a promise. I'm going to keep my promise. Don't get lifted up in pride. God made a promise, he's gonna do it. And it had almost nothing to do with them what they were enjoying. And you say, well, why did God do that for them? Here's why. Because God wanted Israel to be a light and a lamp to the other nations. He wanted them to be a witness and a lampstand and a highway of what happens when any people follows God, knows God, and walks in the ways of God. He wanted Israel to be a channel through which he could pass along his undeserved favor to help the world come to him. That was God's intent from the very beginning. That's why salvation was opened to the Gentiles, because it was always God's plan to reach all of humanity. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, listen to what is spoken there. God says through Moses to the people, he says, keep therefore and do them, that is his commands, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Again, just a few chapters later, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse uh, 16, verse 19 rather. God says to his people, he says, listen, love therefore the stranger or the foreigner for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God's heart was not to bless Israel so that they would see themselves better, but so that they would be an example to what it means to follow God. That's why God did it. But here's what happened to Israel over time. And you understand why and how it happens is that they became insulated, self-absorbed, self-righteous, unconcerned, and prideful. And in that, the blessing that was placed upon their life became a misrepresentation of the God who had exalted them to that position. And their pride had turned into a misuse of the good that he had given them. Now, pride is natural, okay? It's something that you are born with. We are all born with a certain element of pride, But when you are distant from God, pride becomes magnified. When you're close to God, when you're near him, you see things in their right context. So you give thanks. You recognize that everything in your life is from him. You respond in a right way by giving back and reflecting rather than absorbing everything that God gives to you. That's what happens when you're close. But when you're far from God, you see inward. You start to complain, you're discontent, greed creeps in. You begin to compare yourself with others and it becomes a, am I better than you type of a game? And listen, God hates pride. Proverbs chapter six, verse 16 and 17, Solomon says, listen, there are six things, no seven that the Lord hates. And then he says, number one on the list in verse 17 is a proud look. God hates pride. Why? Because pride turns God's friends into God's enemies. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writes, and he says this to you and I. He says, love not the world, neither do the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, three things, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away with the lust thereof. And James tells us that to be friends with the world is to be enemies of God. Pride turns God's friends into God's enemies. Pride also, listen, pride turns the blessings of God into food for human depravity. Let me say that again. Pride turns the blessings of God into food for human depravity. There's an amazing scripture in Ezekiel chapter 16. I think it's right around verse 49 where God speaks and he says this. He says, behold, this was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom. Now you guys know who Sodom was, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. If, if I were to say, take, the, take the, the verse down for a minute off the screen, and I would just shout out, what was the sin of Sodom? Most of you would tell me what the Bible says about the men of Sodom. But that's not what God says. He says, the iniquity of your sister Sodom was pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Pride, fullness of bread, Idleness of time and a lack of concern for the poor. God looked at Sodom and said, that is the sin of Sodom. And that is what turned into the recorded story of what was going on in Sodom, the depravity and the perversity of Sodom that ultimately brought the judgment of God upon them. It started with pride. Pride turns the blessings of God into that which feeds human depravity. And thirdly, pride puts you in the crosshairs of God's discipline. It's a famous verse. It's James chapter 4, verse 6. You've heard it before that God exalts the humble, right? But he resists the proud. He humbles the proud. And when there is pride in a nation, in an individual, in a situation, you are putting yourselves in danger of the chastisement and the correction and the judgment of God. God has a problem with Israel that he is going to correct and understand that his correction is always motivated by love. God wants to restore Israel to her glory and put her in a place where he can do for Israel what he wants to do for Israel, do for David what he wants to do for David. And thus God's going to deal with the issue so that he can shed forth what he wants to shed forth. Interesting that what's about to happen to them is not God's fault. It's their fault. You know, when when my kids were little and they used to you know, have their disciplinary issues and we as parents would apply the, the board of education to the seat of understanding. If you understand what I'm talking about, you know, one of the things I would always say to them as I was speaking with them is I would say, you chose this because you knew this isn't a surprise. You knew when you did what you did, that this was going to happen. You made the decision that this was what, and listen, what, what's about to happen is not God's fault. This is their fault. They chose it. And so what God does is God touches, he puts his finger on the very thing that they were prideful about. The very thing they were glorying in and he weakens it. He shrinks the size of their fighting army and and probably if if 70,000 men died, it doesn't even talk about the rest of the citizens, but 70,000 of the 1.3 million that were numbered as as the army. God weakens their numbers, their strength, and their numerical health, which was the contributing factor to everything else. Now, what fascinates me in this is the way that God does it. Did you pick it up in verse 1? It says that the the anger of the Lord was stirred up against David, so he moved David to say, go number Israel. God moved David to say something that was going to invoke discipline upon the nation. You go, wait, that's not fair. God triggered him. Listen, it doesn't say that God made him do it. It says that God moved him to say. Now, the Bible tells us where words come from. Where do words come from? The heart. From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. God saw something in David's heart, and God stirred that something to the surface and made it come out. There was a nudge that, I want to know how big I am. I want to know how rich I am. I want to know how powerful. Boom. David had this moment of confidence, his chest puffed up, and he was, I want to know. It was in David, and God said, I'm going to get it out of David. And that's what God does. When he sees something in a life that doesn't belong there, he brings it to the surface. Why did Jesus, when he was in the synagogue, with the man there with the withered hand, why did Jesus make him stand forth in the midst? Stand up. I'm sick (laughs) And he stands up and he does it. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. I can't stretch out my... God's way is that he exposes that which is sickly so that he can remove it and get it out of the way. He brings it to the surface and then he removes it. God moved David to say it, okay? Now, notice God owns the action. God was angry. God moved David to say it. So regardless of the fact that David spoke the word, God owns owns this. He says, I did it. But what's amazing is the way that God did it. Okay. God moved ahead of state, David, the king, to make a decree that would invoke discipline on the entire nation. And he did it through the avenue of Satan. You say, what? When you read the same passage in first Chronicles, first Chronicles 21, one, the verse will go up on the screen. It says this, it says that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. You say, well, wait a minute. Samuel says God moved David. Chronicles says Satan moved David. That, that seems like a contradiction. No, 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 no. Listen, God used Satan to move David to chastise him and the people. And all of a sudden you're going like, what? The, how, how, is, how does all of this work? Understand this, the devil works for God. Did you know that? Now, I know someone in here is going, like, the devil doesn't work for God. The devil is like the contrary of God. And you have good and evil and, you know, darkness and light. And no, 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 God owns the devil, all right? God establishes boundaries. God is sovereign, and Satan cannot do what God does not allow him to do. If Satan does something, God allowed Satan to do that something. God pulls the strings even when the devil moves. When the devil moved Potiphar's wife to move on Joseph, that was God pulling the strings because God had a plan, something that he was doing. When Job was afflicted by Satan in every way to an unimaginable level. It was God that was behind the scenes pulling the strings because he was doing something in Job that Job couldn't understand to bring forth an outcome that would actually be beneficial to Job and shameful towards the devil. But when you just look at it on the surface, you're like, look what the devil's doing to Job. He's just killing him. And God says, no, I own that. Because I'm doing something with it and doing something through it that time is going to reveal is actually good. Listen to what John says. John chapter 1, verse 3. Listen. John says, All things were made by him, that is Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing that is made was made except from him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Watch this. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Follow it. Jesus said, I make all things, and at some point in all things, I have drawn a dividing line behind between that which is light and that which is dark, and there is a separation between the two. But I made, I control both, says the Lord. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. God says, I. Own what happens on earth, no matter what you want to say about it. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, it says that the Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's extremely challenging, okay? But God ordained darkness and he uses it as he wills. So God moved a human government to make a decree to bring chastisement upon a people that had nothing to do with the decree that was made by David. But God saw in his wisdom and his vision that the people were equally at fault with David. God saw that. And it resulted in a pandemic that took the lives of 70,000 men in three days. Now, do the math. 1.3 million, 70,000 were taken out. That's 5%. So in three days, 5% of the population was taken out by this pandemic. That makes me think that what we're going through right now is not a pandemic, okay? Because when you do the same math, which I did today, according to the sources, and I say that, (laughs) 665,000 people in the United States of America have died from COVID-19 since its inception. Out of a population of three hundred and thirty one and a half million people do the math that means that point zero zero two percent of the population has died from the pandemic okay five percent in Israel in three days point zero zero two percent of the population in two years. I'm not sure that's what we're going through right now, okay? When you look at it in the context of the scripture, but I guess that's stuff to talk about for another time. But isn't it interesting? If I, if I gave this message two years ago, you'd all be like, would teach stop? You know, like this is long, you know, who cares? But now you're like, <laughs> 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 pandemic, <laughs> I, under- I want you to know something. This is the sovereign Lord Almighty that's doing this. This is the Lord who calls himself the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, showing mercy towards thousands. It's the same God of whom it is said and will be said that true and righteous are his judgments, meaning that when you see what he sees and know what he knows, you will say, God, everything you did was about perfect. True and righteous are your judgments. God, you're doing all of this. You say, How in the world does all that work? I have no idea. God, the devil, governments, edicts, discipline, chastisement, moving on. I have no idea. Here's what I do know I know that Joseph, Job, Israel in the story, you and me now, I know that God's intent behind what he does is always good and for the good. And he turns it around for the good. Don't trade what you don't know. Why is this happening? How is this happening? Who's in charge? Who's calling the shots? Don't trade what you don't know for what you do know. God is good. Okay. You say, yeah, but this makes me a little bit afraid of God. Good. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> We're supposed to fear God. Well, we see that God relented and he pulled back when the angel was by the threshing floor of Aruna. So the angel gets to this specific spot that God was waiting. You see God watching. He's watching. There goes the angel. He's moving through from Dan to Beersheba. He's over by Tyre. He's moving. He gets to Jerusalem. He's by the threshing floor of Aruna. He's in that spot. God says, stop. The angel. Poof. And then God says, open David's eyes and David sees. David realizes. And David prays and he says, I have sinned. I did this. God, God, you maybe see it in the whole nation, but it's me. I did this. Bring it upon me and upon my family. I'm guilty. It's my pride. It's not their fault. I did this. And God says, hold back, stop, pause. And then he sends the prophet Gad to tell David to go by the threshing floor. It moves from God's problem to God's plan. If you're taking notes, God had a plan. He was doing something. There was an intended outcome in all of this. There was a reason behind all that God was doing right here that went beyond just the correction and the chastisement. He said, go buy that man's threshing floor, his. Not his neighbors, not another one down the block, not the best one in Israel. I want that threshing floor. David, you go get it. And so David through Gad goes, makes an offer, buys it. Why does God want this place? Why does God want the top of this hill on this particular plot? Why is it important to God? Here's why. Because way back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God visited his friend Abraham and he spoke these words to Abraham there. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, watch this, which I will tell you of. In other words, I want to tell you about that spot, Abraham. So take your only begotten son whom you love and offer him there on that mountain as a burnt offering to me. So Abraham goes. And he rehearses the gospel perfectly. He places the wood for the offering upon his only son, Isaac. Isaac, the only begotten son, carries the wood up the hill. He asks the question, he says, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God's going to provide that. They come to the precipice and Abraham fastens his son, binds him to the wood. Read it in Genesis 22. Isaac, the son, submits himself to this exercise. And as Abraham, out of obedience and astonishment, lifts the knife over his son, God says, stop, cut. The rehearsal's over. He says, Abraham, I I don't want human sacrifice. I don't want you to kill your son. This, This was intentional. Stop, turn around. And Abraham turns around and he sees a ram, a male lamb of the first year, with his horns caught in the thorns. He sees a male lamb with a crown of thorns in the bush behind him. And then he says, offer that instead, it's a substitution. And Abraham offers that lamb up to God that day and then here is declared the word out of Abraham's mouth. He says, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be seen. In other words, all of what just happened is a dress rehearsal for something that's going to happen at a future moment in the mount of the Lord. What mount? That mount. Verse one, or G- Genesis 22 two. the mount of Moriah. You say, well, what does that have to do with the threshing floor of Aruna? Second Chronicles chapter three, verse one. It says, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan or Aruna, the Jebusite. See, that spot that God wanted became the building grounds for the temple. And ultimately, the highest point, which was where the threshing floor would be, because it's where the winds were the strongest, was a place that would later be renamed Calvary. It would be the place where Jesus, the Lamb of God, would carry the cross up the hill to the highest place, And there be offered as a sacrifice, the only begotten son of God with a crown of thorns. And he would be the substitution to take the sin of mankind upon himself, to remove their guilt from them once and forever. And it was in that spot that Jesus would be offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings that would stay the plague that humanity deserved. God had a plan. He wanted that mountain and he got it. He bought it. So the plague, the pandemic that went through Israel was a calculated part of God's plan to heal and restore and correct a nation, but also to set the stage for the coming of his son and ultimately to reveal the pathway to having peace with God even though we deserve wrath. And that brings us to number three, which is the pathway. We had a problem, we saw God's plan, and now the pathway. The pathway to peace with God was when the offering was made on Mount Moriah. A picture and a foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion, a sacrifice of substitution, one taking the place of the guilty. And that was God's way, prescription for removing the plague. It's interesting uh, to me to think about the times that we're living in right now. I mean, it's been pretty crazy the last couple of years, hasn't it? What we've seen in the United States of America. And what we know is that the United States of America, we are not Israel. But we have as a nation, we have been uniquely blessed by God. You think about everything that we enjoy. Why? Because we've been founded upon his principles and his ways. And, and over large as a people from our founding through the years. We have walked in them. And because of that, God has placed his blessing on our country. And we can look at our country, maybe not this moment, but maybe up to two years ago. And we can look around and we can say, yeah, we're better. (laughs) We just are. We're better militarily. We have a better economy. We have a better culture. We have better values and ethics than the rest of the world better living conditions, a better environment. We have a better government, better laws, a better quality of life. We have better health, better land, a better location. Man, really, in this country, we are advantaged in every single way. Why? Because we've walked in the ways of God historically. And God says that this is what I will do. This is my promise upon any that walk in these things. That's why these things exist. What was the reason why God raised up and blessed the United States of America? So that we would be a witness and a lampstand to the nations. So that we could pass along the undeserved favor that he had given to us. And that we would be a light and a lamp to to, to reveal and to show. But instead, what's happened in our country is that we've taken the blessing of God. And we become insulated and self-absorbed and self-righteous and unconcerned and prideful. There's that word. And we become a misrepresentation of the God who exalted us. And we've misused the good things that he's bestowed upon us. And we as a nation, and maybe even as a world, are under the discipline and the chastisement of God. Now, I said earlier, I said, I don't think this is a, a pandemic per se that we're in. I think if God does pandemic, it's pandemic. I think it's all three myself. I think we are under a depression. We just haven't felt it yet. And I think we're under invasion. We just don't know it yet. And I think we're under pandemic, which we're feeling partially. But God has a problem with us. Why? Because of our pride, because of our rebellion, our indulgence. But know this, God also has a plan. He has a plan in what he's doing right now. God's desire, his A plan is to heal, is to restore, is to correct a nation that has turned their back on him. That's the A plan. That's always God's A plan. I don't know why, but God has a severely deep interest in this world and its health. I mean, really, if you think about it, our world is a soul factory, right? Right? And there are things that we learn and are taught and, and, and that we experience of God in this life uniquely that we can experience in no other way. And it means something for eternity. And God is concerned with the health of the world and wants it to last as long as possible. We are told specifically in the New Testament that the reason he hasn't come back yet is because of his patience and long suffering for the sake of salvation. So God wants to heal and restore. And listen, maybe he will. Maybe he is. Maybe that's the reason for what he's doing right now. And I hope it is. Listen, Israel went on to be blessed. I'm sure they thought, this is it. It's over. We're done. There were many times, even after David, that they had come to the brink where they thought, this is so bad, it can go no further. But then a Josiah would be born, or an Asa, or a Hezekiah would be born, and things would turn around. And God would heal and restore. And he would do that until it came to the point where God just said, this thing is so sick and so diseased, there's nothing left for me to do but just wipe Israel out completely. He still wasn't done with the world. And yes, we're feeling the tremors of some very terrible things, and certainly we're under the judgment of God, at least the discipline of God. But he could turn it around again, and maybe he will. But maybe he won't. Maybe we won't. Maybe we won't receive. Maybe we'll harden ourselves in our pride and say, we will not have this man rule over us. And we're going to go our own way and we're going to do our own thing. And at that point, the end will come. And God will call his church home and it will be the return of Christ and things will end there. But understand this. We are having a problem right now. And we know that God has a plan, but he has also provided a pathway. Upon Mount Moriah 2,000 years ago, God provided a sacrifice in his son, Jesus. And God placed the sin and the weight of that sin and the judgment of that sin completely and 100% upon his son, Jesus. And he invites whosoever will to join him in that sacrifice and to die with him there and to place their full faith and trust for the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus himself. And in that, to move from the realm and the influence of darkness into the security and the safety of his light and to not only be forgiven of our sin, but to have the promise of God to sustain and to keep and to hold on to us regardless of what else is going on on earth. You do not want to be under the influence of the kingdom of darkness right now. God has made a separation between the two. He has declared that in Jesus is life and that life is the light of men. But he says also in John that men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And you could be a person that doesn't know Jesus personally and you are a slave to whatever the darkness does. But in Christ and in faith in Christ, you're on a path where God can sustain and hold and keep you. And regardless of what happens in the world around you, God knows how to deliver the righteous from troubles. It says that in Thessalonians. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And God will use the things that we go through, even what we experience now, to wake us up and to shake us up, but ultimately land us in an even better place than we were before. That's what he did with Israel. That's what he wants to do with our nation But he will absolutely do it with the individual. And the invitation to know Christ is personal. But my question to you tonight is this Are you in the pathway that God has ordained? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Are you in the light? Because it's possible for you to know Jesus for salvation, but yet to be walking in darkness. This is not a time that you want to be walking in darkness. It is high time, as Paul would say to the Romans that we awake from our sleep and that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. What does it look like to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? It's like David did when he saw the angel. What did he say? He said, I have sinned and I have done wickedly and this is my fault and therefore God placed this plague upon me and upon my descendants forever. It's on me. That's Humility. It's recognizing and realizing that all that we're going through right now is not China's fault. It's not the Democrats or the Republicans' fault. It's not, I don't even want to start this. Let's get everybody angry. Uh, let me really make you angry. It's your fault. It's my fault. Because I'm, I'm the same, pr- my pride is, is the same. God looks at me, and if he's gonna move ahead of state to do something that's gonna affect me, he's, he's equally upset with me. I, 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 I'm guilty. Lord, it's on me. I've taken the goodness of living in this land and used it for me. I've taken the blessing that he placed in my life, and I've used it to measure and exalt myself over other people. I'm guilty. And what does God say will happen when a people called by his name Truly humble themselves and pray that way. Second Chronicles. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I invite you tonight in whatever state that you're in, to turn to Jesus Christ with your whole heart. Not with part or half or on behalf of someone else, but your whole heart to turn to him, to get into his light for such a time as this. That regardless of the outcome of where we land in three or five or 10 years or two months wow. or whatever it is, that we're walking in the light and we have the confidence of walking in the light. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. and. And we pray tonight, Lord, as we look at this text of Scripture and it's so revealing. Lord, we just want to be in harmony with your kingdom, with your person, with the times, and with your ways. And Lord, I ask tonight that you would move us there. Lord, forgive us, Father, for our sinfulness, our independence, for our pride, our blindness. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of concern for others, our idleness of time. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to really realize that it's an offense to your heart. And teach us what it means to be a people that truly humbles ourselves. Lord, that we might receive the correction that you're seeking to impose upon us, that we might be more perfectly set in your ways. So help us tonight, God. And Lord, I pray tonight for anyone that's here that may not know you personally that, Lord, you'd give them the grace, that you would give them your still, small voice, that you'd whisper the truth in their ears that you're real, that your word is real, that your gospel is real, that your salvation is real, that you came to seek and to save that which was lost, and that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you're the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in goodness and kindness, by no means pardoning the guilty, but will show mercy generation upon generation. Lord, that you'd reveal yourself in that way, that we might know you. Lord, bless this church, bless these people. Lord, move in our country and in our midst. Help us to be healed and to be restored. Revive your church again, oh God. And help us, Lord, that we might be a people that are a city that's set upon a hill that cannot be hid. We need you now more than ever, God. May our eyes be set upward. We thank you for hearing us. Thank you for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.